Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wandjeri, people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay respects to Elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up in the Glasshouse today, I'll be joined by the General Manager of Sweatshop and co-author of their new anthology, uh, Winnie Dunn. The new collection is called Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate and Bigotry. And it is co-edited by Stefan Pham and Phoebe Grainer and includes the stories of 39 Indigenous and writers of colour. It is a powerful and timely collection where each writer shares their personal experiences with racism, xenophobia and prejudice. It is a really interesting anthology and definitely one for all Australians. Later in the show, I'll be joined by poet, cultural critic and co-editor of Overland Literary Journal, Evelyn Araluen. We'll be speaking all about Overland's new literary prize, the Karaka Prize for Australian Literature. It is a really interesting prize. Uh, they have just announced their long list and I'm very excited to be chatting with Evelyn all about that. Western Sydney literacy movement Sweatshop have released a new publication called Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate and Bigotry. It showcases the stories of 39 writers uh, that are Indigenous and writers of colour and the writers share stories of racism, xenophobia and prejudice. And I am joined this afternoon by General Manager of Sweatshop and also co-author of this anthology, Winnie Dunn. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon, Winnie. Oh, no, thank you so much. Uh, good afternoon. Um, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Um, would you like to start with a short reading? Um, yeah, because um, I've been flicking through it this morning and I think um, I wanted to read something by um, Lebanese-Australian writer Amani Hader. Um, she's an award-winning uh, visual artist, um, but she's also a brilliant uh, writer and her her new book uh, the mother wound is, is coming out in a couple of days and so um, if anybody is interested in kind of Armani's work and what it represents I think uh, getting a copy of uh, racism stories on sea hate and bigotry on the sweatshop website um, is a great way to start so I'll just begin the following August coincides with Ramadan and a case I'm working on is being heard in the Supreme Court of New South Wales It's a matter about a farm that grows more cotton than I can visualise. One evening, another solicitor and I are in a conference with the barrister representing our client. We refer to him as counsel. Counsel is a tall man with shaggy grey hair, an ex-politician. He owns the building we're meeting in, a heritage-listed Federation-style building on Macquarie Street. Counsel's back and legs fill the square room we're in as he paces back and forth, reading from a textbook. Black robes and a curly wig are draped over a coat stand in the corner. We had, a, we had court today and the hearing continues tomorrow. My colleague shuffles through papers while I take notes. I've been fasting all day because I don't take any breaks, because I don't want anyone to think that my religion makes me lazy. 
I watch the sky turn orange, then darken through the window over Council's shoulder. He switches on a tall lamp and reads a section of legislation out loud for the third time. I say this miller in my heart and lift my water bottle to my lips. I extract three dates from a Ziploc bag in my handbag. I place them in my lap on top of my binder. They're like garnets in the lamplight. I eat them one by one, silently, so as not to disrupt the conversation. Council stops reading, drops into a chair, and crosses his legs so that his big brown shoe hovers in the middle of the room. He smiles and asks, Are you still doing that thing, Amani? I lower my half-eaten date with the pit poking out and brush a stray strand of my hair from my eyes. Yes, I've been fasting for Ramadan, I reply. Ah, he exclaims, beaming. I have a case about some of your group who want to build their church somewhere, and we're arguing section 616. It's unconstitutional. Council's chair creaks as he crosses his legs and leans forward. None of what he has just said makes any sense to me. I nod. That sounds interesting. Council lifts a hand to his belly. But I wish I subscribed to Ramadan, he says, rubbing his tummy and chuckling. Maybe I'd lose a little weight. Mm. That's it. Thank you. That is Winnie Dunn reading from Racism Stories on Fear, Hate and Bigotry, that one by Amani Haydar um, called Hijab Days. Thank you so much for um, for that reading. Winnie, I'd love to start by um, talking a bit about your introduction that you wrote with your co-editors. You, you start by saying you want to mm-hmm. set the record straight and, you, you know, you situate, um, I suppose, racism in this country on with the effects that it has on Indigenous people looking at Indigenous deaths in custody and those horrific statistics. Why why was it important for you to start the book mm-hmm. here? Um, well, one, I think it was important to start the book there because um, as a co-editor, um, one of my editors uh, was uh, Dijungan, uh, a Kukujungan woman, uh, Phoebe Grainer, and um, because uh, being First Nations is her lived experience and, and her community suffers the most and, um, you know, we live um, on the on unceded lands, you know, always was, always will be. And so um, it was very important to to open up with those statistics there because we can't talk about racism in Australia without first talking about um, Indigenous suffering. Um, we also, what and what me, Phoebe, and uh, my fellow co-editor, Stephen Pham, uh, what we wanted to set the record straight with was that racism does exist in Australia. And, you know, we had John Howard quite recently saying that uh, racism doesn't exist in Australia. There are racists in Australia, but uh, he doesn't believe that racism exists in this country. And I think just the ignorance and the delusions um, about racism in this country uh, is quite confronting, I think, uh, for people of colour and allies who support us and who understand that racism is a problem um, and that the inequality exists uh, between between races, mm. and so that's what that's why we made uh, racism the book it, uh, to to really showcase with kind of like forty writers that racism does exist. It is a lived experience, and um, it is real. Mm. And I mean, I think it's no surprise that I suppose like racial literacy and kind of cultural literacy among many white Australians isn't unfortunately that high. Um, you know, I think that when, you know, you open the book by saying Australia is racist, I think perhaps some more conservative Australians might think that that is, um, you know, they might be affronted by that when, of course, that is the reality. You go on to say all of the ways that um, racism affects this country. I suppose, you know, 
looking at racism as a structural problem. Can you kind of talk about, I suppose, the the structural and systemic elements of racism and and kind of explain what what you mean by that? Yeah, well, I think you put it perfectly that, that racism is not an individual or personal problem. Individuals and people can be individually racist, um, but that's not what the book is trying to say. Like, we don't want to offside any any reader who wants to learn about this stuff but might feel personally confronted. It is just about addressing the fact that systemic problems um, of racism in Australia exist. And, you know, that's why, that's why we put uh, the statistics of, um, you know, the deaths in custody, you know, since 1991, at least 474 Indigenous people have been murdered in custody. 51 Muslims were gunned down um, in Christchurch in two mosques uh, two years ago. Um, 39 unlawful killings of Afghan uh, civilians uh, by Australian soldiers. And in the wake of COVID-19, more than 1,000 Asian Australians reported incidents of racial discrimination. Um, And to date, 2,000 refugees are held and denied basic human rights in detention facilities across the country and in offshore detention. And, you know, as a Tongan woman myself, um, seeing seasonal workers come in uh, to pick Australian fruit and then to have many of them, uh, I think it's recorded, like the recorded deaths on farms of uh, Pacific seasonal workers are 10, uh, but that's only what's recorded. And so the idea is that racism, systemic racism and these problems that kind of belittle Indigenous people and people of colour, um, it does affect us and it does kill us. And so um, that's why that's why we made this book. It's to be like these problems are real mm. and they're not any one individual's sole problem but it is but it is a whole it is our whole nation's problem that we need to address as a society together mm. They are such overwhelming um, statistics and so, you know, really present why this book is so timely um, and so relevant and just so important to to address people's experiences of racism. You know, Sweatshop Literacy Movement have done so much work in this space in, in doing anti-racist work since it kind of first began. I'm interested, um, I suppose, where you see this anthology sitting amongst the work that Sweatshop has done and is doing. Mm. Well... It, it it was kind of surprising to us when we first made this book uh, because uh, uh, renowned uh, young adult author Sarah Ayub came up with the idea. She was like, "Why?" Don't, and she concludes uh, the uh, the anthology, and she said, "Why don't we just specifically talk about racism?" And in fact, there's no other book I want to say in the world that's just named racism. <laughs> um, there's so many books about racism and be, being anti-racist and learning about racism and, and different forms of racism, but there hasn't been a book that's been specifically called Racism. And so we just wanted to make it uh, a kind of... This anthology, we just wanted to make it very simple, very clear. You know, we didn't we didn't want to have kind of... We didn't want to beat around the bush or anything. We were like, this. we are having a very serious conversation about racism, and we are having a very honest reflection about what it's like to live in Australia um, as a marginalised individual uh, because because we simply come from a from a different culture all of Sweatshop's books from Sweatshop Women volume one and two to Bent Not Broken to this little red thing uh, to the big black thing chapter one and two they all talk about racism but this anthology is in fact the first time we're just very clear and very simple and very straightforward about it and I think 
everybody should be having very clear and very straightforward conversations about race and about racism um, because that's where real change begins. Yeah, it reminds me of what you say in your introduction where you say you're, you, there's no literary pretensions and like having a, a book titled Racism, you really can't hide behind it being anything else. And I love that kind of directness and it makes it, I think, accessible because, um, yeah, you're just not hiding behind anything. It is, is straight to the point. Um, you know, I'd love to talk a bit more about um, Sweatshop and, you know, I know you have the three different uh, literary collectives. Can you talk a little bit about them and, and how um, how that works and kind of how that they they brought together uh, kind of brought together for this anthology yeah um thank you for that question so i um as as a woman as somebody who identifies as a woman um i run the sweatshop women's writers collective and that was started in about 2018 um as kind of uh an an action or a, a response uh to the global me too movement that was uh started by um african american woman tarana burke um and the idea is that you know it was women being able to tell their own stories and being believed um when they were telling their own stories um and i think it goes beyond kind of what me too started as which is kind of about rape and sexual assault but it but it became a kind of global movement of like you know women have lived experiences that are uh, specific to them. Women of colour have lived experiences that are specific to them and so that's how the Search of Women collective started and Search of Women Volume 1 and 2 um, was a great success. Um, and then there's the Western Sydney Writers Group which is the kind of smaller collective that's run by award-winning author and the founder and director of Search of uh, Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Um, and, and that group meets uh, a bit infrequently, but the idea is that um, you're kind of getting um, kind of the best feedback from one of the best writers in Australia, um, I think. And then most recently, uh, the Black Lives Workshop, which was started by um, African-American um, expat uh, Dr. Sydney Allen. Um, that was a direct response to the Black Lives uh, Matter uh, resurgence that we saw last year um, in response to uh, uh, George Floyd's killing. And so... All of all, all those workshops uh, kind of respond to something happening in the world, um, and specifically how we can respond to it in an Australian context. Uh, but so much of the the workshops uh, were separated for a long time. I think that was important, uh, especially considering the uh, the diverse women's writers group that I run, because not only did we want a safe space for uh, women who identified with a cultural background um, to have their own space to tell their own stories, but also space away from the male gaze um, as well, uh, which is something, uh, and the patriarchal kind of male gaze, which is something women are always having to factor in, whether they're white, brown, black. Uh, we always have to factor in that male gaze. And so, um, but it was kind of refreshing to finally have everyone come together and, and be a very strong collective uh, for for a topic that's uh, really important and that um, is kind of in the background of our everyday lives. Absolutely. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with General Manager of Sweatshop and also co-author of this new anthology, We're Talking About Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate and Bigotry, Winnie Dunn. Um, Winnie, I know that you've worked with young people um, in your local community, uh, I suppose looking at these questions about what this anthology is about. I'm interested in what that experience has been like and you know, what you think that working with them about stories of racism has done um, for them and perhaps um, consequently um, yourself? 
Yeah, well, I think the most important work that Sweatshop does is actually going out uh, to schools and teaching young people um, how to write their own stories, but how to think critically. Um, you know, the government just backed uh, Pauline Hanson um, to kind of dismiss uh, critical race theory to be discussed in schools, um, which is, again, just another form of racism and gatekeeping and trying to control uh, conversations um, that the government should should really not be in control and, in fact, should be listening and taking notes. Um, and so working with uh, young people for this anthology, we worked in a suburb, in a Sydney suburb uh, of Campbelltown, southwest Sydney. It's a very low socioeconomic area. It's a very high population um, of uh, Pacific Islanders. Um, and so for me, as a, as a Tongan woman, going into those schools and meeting kind of the next generation of Pacific Islander writers and writers who identified as black, as Asian, as indigenous. Um, it was it was really important, and I think there's a myth um, that's being perpetrated that young people don't know how to talk about racism, or that they shouldn't talk about racism, or that that topic is too harsh for them um, because they're innocent. Um, but you know, studies show that um, children learn about racism from as young as one, two years old. And so working with kind of young students in Year 7, you know, discussing what it means to be a light-skinned Aboriginal person uh, in the case of Riley Ingersoll or in the case of um, Ayub Jama, um, you know, what it means for him to understand that when people touch his hair um, as, as, a black, as a black boy and, people, and when people touch his hair without, um, without getting permission, um, that that's a form of microaggression um, and racism. And, you know, just, just seeing the kids being like, yeah, no, I've always thought about these things or I've seen these things on TikTok, but I've never, I've never tried to discuss it within myself. Um, that, that was really great. And I think the kids' stories really stand out in racism because they really, really understand what racism is. They really understand how racism affects them. Um, and they really want to live in a world where racism doesn't exist. And I think that's the most important thing. Mm, absolutely. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you just touched on. Like, I think, you know, racism obviously exists in so many different ways. It, it You know, this book shows it's it's it can be very overt. It can be name calling on the street or it can, as you said, uh, you know, uh, exist in more subtle kind of covert ways, being overlooked for jobs, microaggressions in different ways. I'm interested with that in mind, how you approached the kind of curation of this anthology alongside your co-editors. Yeah, well, it it wasn't hard to get the writers um, that we work with at Sweatshop to discuss racism. It just so happens that that's what they talk about when they write uh, stories about themselves. So Sweatshop specialises in uh, autobiographical fiction. We think every form of writing and, and literature uh, is a form of autobiographical fiction. I think it's a myth that the imagination is endless and you can walk in the shoes of a, of a cat or a, or a man in the desert or something. Uh, <laughs> um, and so it, incidentally, um, when you write autobiographical fiction um, consciously, uh, you, just, you just write about your experiences of racism. And so it wasn't hard for the writers to discuss it. But what incidentally came out of that was very subtle, very covert uh, forms of racism. Um, which is what most 
Indigenous people and people of colour experience on a day-to-day basis. It's actually quite extreme to get yelled at mm. on the street or, or quite extreme, even though it happens, uh, quite extreme to have somebody rip your hijab off, uh, for example, or, um, you know, have somebody threaten you physically uh, because of the colour of your skin. It happens, uh, but on an everyday basis, uh, it's very small. Like uh, Sydney Allen wrote the, this really beautiful collection of vignettes about receipts and how every time she goes to the shop uh, with her with her black with her black son she has to carry receipts everywhere and show them to security guards because often they they subtly accost her to be like did you buy these things or um, what shops did you go to before you came here and you know needing proof like always needing evidence that she's living by the rules and, and doing quote unquote uh, the right thing um, according to society mm. um, and so that, that's what was interesting to us um, as editors. I think we were kind of expecting some grandiose <laughs> version of, of racism um, that somebody experienced, but I think that's kind of the sadness, but also the beauty of this collection is that um, racism can be just microaggressions, really small acts um, of indiscretion, mm. um, and that they're painful and, and it adds up. And then eventually um, that pain um, eventually culminates into what we see in response to, like, George Floyd dying, you know, global movements and protests um, against racism. Um, Because, and I think that's why racism is, the book Racism is important because uh, people outside of that that experience don't see the subtle racism, don't see the minor, um, the minor hurt that people of colour experience every day to day. They just go in the news and see these angry black people or these angry indigenous people and they're like, why are they so angry? Why are they so upset? Why are there thousands of them on the street? Um, so I think racism is kind of definitive proof of like, no, here are the small stuff that really adds up to the big stuff that you see um, when you check the news on your phone. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that this book can act as somewhat of a time capsule and that, you know, hopefully when we're looking back on this on this book, this, um, you know, amazing work of literature in, I don't know, 10, 20 years' time, that it has changed, um, I, I can only hope. Um, uh, Winnie, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's always a pleasure um, chatting with you. Thank you so much. And if anybody who's listening is interested in the book, please hop on the Switch Up website at switchup.ws and I will personally send you a copy in the mail because <laughs> that's part of my job. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. You heard it here first. Uh, that was Winnie Dunn there, who is the general manager of Sweatshop. She is also co-editor um, of this book that we have been discussing. It's called Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate and Bigotry and it is out through Sweatshop. You are listening to Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. In honour of the late Auntie Kerry Reed Gilbert, Overland has created a new literary prize rewarding excellence and generosity in Australian writing, irrespective of form and genre. The Kuraka Prize for Australian Literature is open to all Australians, Australian writers for fiction, poetry, essay, memoir, creative nonfiction, cartoon, graphic novels, digital or audio storytelling, and the long list has just been announced. Joining me to speak about this new initiative this afternoon, I have Overland co-editor Evelyn Araluen. Evelyn, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be able to talk about this. It is really exciting. I love this idea of this prize. It is um, created in honour of Wadjuri elder, poet, writer, activist, educator, artist, um, Auntie Kerry Reed Gilbert. Can you tell me what impact did Kerry have um, perhaps on the literary landscape and, and also and your, your own kind of artistic career? Well, um, a pretty profound one, but one of those histories and one of those legacies that has never really gotten the same kind of attention and acknowledgement, in a large part because Kerry was working across all of those categories. She was, you know, a writer and an editor, a mentor. She had a massive involvement with the establishment of FANORN, the First Nations Australian Writers Network, and was working really actively to support First Nations writing all over the country. But she was also just such an incredibly generous mentor and writer herself. So it's not simply the impact on First Nations writing, but, you know, she should be celebrated for. She also was just such a, you know, just such a strong backbone in Australia's literary landscape. And it was just a real, it was a real tragedy that she passed away when she did. You know, she was, I think she had only just completed her own memoir about two or three days before she passed. And so it was... Really, you know, really one of those lives that just gave and gave and gave and then sadly she didn't really get the opportunity to see how well her work was received and responded to. But, um, you know, that's kind of what what gave us this drive towards thinking about those those figures in our literary history whose stories don't really ever get told unless we actively try to create opportunities and create chances to really bring them back into the focus and give them the attention that they deserve that might not have experienced in their own life. I mean, yeah, I think it's incredible. And I think something that you've kind of spoken about here is her um, generosity, talking about how she had a great impact on not only her community, but the larger literary community. Um, I love that in the kind of creation of this prize, you say that you reward generosity um, in Australian writing. And I think, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting kind of differentiation between this and perhaps other writing prizes. Can you explain to me... um, for you, what does it mean to have generosity in a piece of writing? Yeah, and I'm really glad you asked about that because we knew that that was going to be one of the controversial elements because, you know, we want the prize to emphasise literary excellence and originality and all of those other things. But to think about generosity was kind of throwing a little bit of a spanner into the works. So when we asked for generosity, we were really thinking about work particularly that celebrates that educates, that is driven by compassion, work that is driven by hope, um, and if it's, you know, motivated by critique. And some of the submissions that we had were really definitely propelled by, you know, critique, whether that be of literature or politics or culture, that uh, all, of, all of that work comes from a sense of an actual kind of commitment and care for what our literary landscape looks like. So we've seen some really beautiful pieces, I think, responding to that energy, thinking about, you know, everything from celebrating the stories of their old, you know, their old loved ones, or it could be about thinking about, you know, the intimacy of family and country, Uh, We've got works that are really exploring, you know, language and 
um, you know, cultural transmission across different, um, you know, different lived experiences. And so while it's tricky to define, we really wanted to make a place for that, knowing that sometimes when you're running a literary prize, you get work that is just motivated by so much compassion and energy and integrity and there might be other elements of it that you know maybe need a little bit of polishing or maybe are not stylistically in tune with everything that's fashionable in Australian literature right now but it's really that drive and that commitment to you know the best possible literary landscape that we can imagine for ourselves that we think really you know pushes for an idea of excellence so, yeah, we we ran a little bit of a risk with it, but I honestly think it's really paid off when you look at some of the, the pieces that have made it onto our long list. I think it's really exciting because it, it does seems to make way for this possibility of not only what is but also what can be and what could be in the future. I, I also really love that uh, for this prize it is encouraging writers um, regardless of form and it's very inclusive of different types of writing. I'm interested, I suppose, for you, like what was what, – what, why was that really important to you to kind of go, let's, let's, it can be a poet, it can be a graphic novel. Mm. Tell me a bit about that decision. Yeah, well, part of that came from wanting to, again, find ways of honouring Annie Carey's legacy. And she worked across so many different mediums. And a part of it was also about recognising that actually we do fall into certain patterns and behaviours and that might be, you know, literary journals specifically or that might be the, the broad, broader literary landscape. And when we celebrate amazing, you know, fiction and poetry, largely because it's so easy to kind of to, to print new works individually in that own, that sort of compacted length, sometimes we actually miss out on newer and more experimental forms and we sometimes, you know, we lose pace with the broader development and energy that's going on in a literary space. So it was important to us that we kept our own, you know, our own minds open to all of the different possibilities that we could get in for this prize but then making the decision not to actually award in separate categories. So saying, listen, we're not looking for the best poem, we're not looking for the best graphic novel, we're actually looking to see what happens if we put an emphasis on some slightly unconventional values, you know, excellence, yes, but also that idea of generosity. And then what happens if we say we're looking for what constitutes the best in Australian literature with all of that flexibility and fluidity about what literature means today. And I honestly think like if we weren't trying to push for some of those changes and to be a little bit more adaptive in that area we'd be doing a bit of a disservice like there's amazing storytelling going on in podcasting right now and yet there are so few opportunities for literary spaces to really actually embrace podcasting and audio storytelling as literature so we're hoping to kind of push those conversations along and hopefully celebrate some of the really amazing experimental work that's coming out in this in this entire landscape. Mm. I mean, as somebody that works in audio storytelling a lot, I think it's incredibly exciting because, yeah, I see so much literary value in audio works that are coming out and just really exciting uh, kind of experimental and kind of cross-modal forms of um, literature that, you know, in incorporates audio. So I think that is personally very exciting. I I'm interested as well, uh, you know, I suppose literary prizes are 
inevitably essentially a really big part of the sustainability of the careers of many riders in this country. It's kind of, you know, a bit how mm. the the landscape just kind of works. I'm interested, um, you kind of spoke a bit, a bit about kind of pushing the bounds of the possibility of the literary landscape. Where do you see this prize kind of sitting in the broader landscape of the kind of literary ecology in this country? I think this prize is going to be a little bit of a test case for what new opportunities might arise in the kind of economy and infrastructure of literary journals and websites and all of these different smaller independent institutions that work to help cultivate a writer's career. And they're really so crucial, like as you say, they're so crucial at the start of someone's process and also to have that kind of sustainability of their career throughout, to try new work, to see how it's responded before you can actually get that full commitment to, you know, a manuscript or a publishing contract. And so when you look at the kinds of writers that we've got shortlisted, we've got a mix of people who've had multiple books published and who've won multiple awards and quite a few writers who've actually never had official publications before. So I think this prize really attracted a much broader range of writers and creators than what we would have actually expected. And we're hoping, again, that that kind of sets a precedent so that when people are thinking about prize building and building new opportunities, they're trying to ensure that every, you know, every kind of community feels included in that. So really trying to move away from this dichotomy of either like a fully established writer in the absolute heights of their career or an emerging writer, and usually that comes with an emphasis on someone being really, really young, which we think is actually quite problematic because, you know, people emerge in their writing career at whatever age they feel able to do so. So we're kind of hoping that by moving with some slightly more flexible boundaries with that, other journals are going to catch on and think a little bit more experimentally. You know, and we're not the only ones thinking about that as well. Liminal have got their new nonfiction writing prize at the moment running, which I think is another really excellent opportunity to kind of think about how we break down some of these really formal and, you know, sometimes not that useful categories of, you know, poem, essay or fiction. So we're hoping that more journals and small places catch on because right now, if we're going to keep up with all the amazing and incredible skills and possibilities that all of the writers in our community are presenting to us, it's the publications that actually have to be a lot more adaptive mm. and a lot more open-minded. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it seems quite clear that um, people are hungry for this kind of prize. You know, you, on your website, it says you received over 500 submissions, um, which is pretty incredible for, um, you know, for, for a new prize. I mean, yeah, that just it yeah. kind of speaks to the fact that I think people really want this kind of flexibility. Yeah, I think they absolutely do. Like, it was a really amazing, it was a really amazing outcome for the first year that this is actually run. And that's really making us confident that we can actually continue to run this and continue to grow it. Uh, so we're really hoping that um, we get some good feedback, you know, because we know that a new prize it's going to have benefits and it's going to have strengths, but it's also going to have weaknesses. So we're also really hoping that, you know, with with this long list and then when we announce our shortlist and winners, we'll actually start to get some conversation about why this kind of prize had such a great reaction from our community and how we can keep that momentum going and keep building it so that there's a broader outreach and just more opportunities, particularly for those storytellers 
who, like I said, they just don't fit into those easy categories of writing because they're being, you know, they're kind of being a bit neglected there. Mm. So we really want to encourage them to participate more in the future years of the prize. And I imagine that having this flexibility in form is, you know, as we've said, it is so exciting, but I imagine it would also be a little bit challenging in that kind of judging process. I know that for the judges, you had Janine Lean, Justin Clemens and um, Eleanor Gomez. Can you tell me a bit about, I suppose, what that experience was like for them for this judging process when you kind of are judging across different modes? Yeah, we we warned all of them really well in advance. And actually, Janine was really involved with the establishment of this prize. She was a longtime friend of um, Annie Kerry, and she helped us coordinate with the family to get permission and ensure that this was really in honour of that memory and that legacy. Uh, and we really made a very conscious decision to choose a mix of judges who had a lot of experience working across form. So, you know, Justin Clemens, a lot of people know him very well as a philosopher or as a poet or as an essayist, uh, but he's really got just an incredibly sharp literary mind. So we were very excited to work with him. You know, he's got a lot of artistic experience as well. Uh, Eleanor Gomez is a really exciting young poet, but she's also an editor and she been working a lot in the publishing industry more broadly, you know, whether that be for fully established publishing houses or for independent journals. And Janine, of course, has this really long history working across poetry and short story and novels and teaching creative writing. So we really wanted to make sure that our judges reflected a very wide range of expertise. And you saw that play out. You know, I, I snuck into some of the judging, some of those judging conversations and got to listen to all of their thoughts and responses and you know this is also one of these prizes where we've been trying to use um, a bit of an accountability structure around ensuring that our writers are being honest about whose story they're representing and so if they have you know if they feel inclined to do so they actually do have the option to inform us about whether they are they represent the community that they're telling a story about or not and then our judges can have access to that information if they feel like it's relevant for the nature of a piece so they really had every resource we could possibly throw at them to make sure that they were confident in their decisions and what was really lovely was seeing all of that detail that they invested and just how much actually this question of generosity became the test for a lot of these pieces because I think for our judges, you know, they've each got tons of experience judging slightly more conventional prizes. This idea of generosity gave them the opportunity to actually think about the kinds of work that we want a prize of this nature to celebrate and the kinds of values and commitments. You know, once you get to the point of an incredible long list like this, where all of the pieces are excellent, all of the pieces are prize-worthy, starting to think about compassion and, you know, political commitment or any other kind of personal, cultural, social value that a piece might explore, it was actually a really great opportunity for our judges to place these excellent pieces in conversation with each other mm. to find, you know, to find those winners that best reflect what we think is excellent about Australia's literary landscape right now. Well, I think it's incredibly exciting. Um, I have to let you go because I'm running out of time, but it's um, it's always a pleasure to chat to you. Congratulations um, on this new initiative. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, sharing the story of it. 
Of course, uh, we're just chatting there with Evelyn Aralewin, who is one of the co-editors of Overland Literary Journal. We're just chatting there about their new prize. It is called the Kuraka Prize for Australian Literature, and it is open to Australian writers across uh, across form. Um, and they have just announced their long list, and they'll be announcing their short list and the winner very soon. So you can keep an eye out over on the Overland website. You're listening to Triple R. My name's Beth. It is very much time for me to leave you. I do want to say a big thanks to my guests, as always, Evelyn Aralewin there talking about the Kuraka Prize for Australian Literature. That one is um, by Overland. And, of course, do want to say a big thanks to Winnie Dunn, General Manager of Sweatshop and co-editor of their new anthology, Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate and Bigotry. It is uh, an important read and I highly recommend uh, anyone picking up a copy. It is out through Sweatshop. You are listening to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website.